We are into the first week proper, okay? Last week was an intro. If you missed it, you can catch up. Um, But we're into the first week proper uh, of a series which really is aiming to dig into discipleship. As I said last week, discipleship is one of those buzzwords in the Christian world right now. There's a lot of focus on it in the way that maybe there was a lot of focus on things like worship or uh, stuff like that for a long time. Discipleship is kind of one of the words at the minute. And for the next four weeks, we are going to be taking a look at Jesus' word words from Mark 8 in a section titled in lots of your Bibles, okay, uh, called The Way of the Cross. That'll probably be the heading at the top of this little passage uh, from Mark 8, 34 through to Mark 9 and verse 1. And there are four big key elements that Jesus outlines in that little short verse, okay? Four key elements to our discipleship journey, right? I'm not talking activities, okay? So put that away for a minute. I know we want to rush to the activities, to the courses, to the books. We want to get there, but we're not there, okay? Don't worry about that for now. We're not talking activities or disciplines or anything like that at all. I mean, what is the nature of discipleship? Like, what is it actually? What is going on when we say that word? You see, Jesus is telling those around him that day what it means to be a disciple. And that's what we want to look at, right? And it turns out that there's a process, there are qualities that he outlines, right? And this is what it says in the passage. This is Mark 8, 34 through to Mark 9, 1. This is what it says. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death, before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And we thank God for his word, that as we still read it, it has truth in our lives today. When I was really young, okay, we're talking like primary school young here, right? My parents decided that it was time for us, time for me to get pocket money. When I say they decided, what I mean really was I berated them into giving me pocket money, right? Like went on and on and on. I need to get pocket money, dad. I've got stuff that I need to buy. Give me some pocket money, right? So they decided that around that time in my life, it would be suitable that I got £1.50 pocket money per week, right? Times have changed, okay? £1.50 although my daughter will not be getting any more than £1.50, right? I got £1.50. And the thing is that at that time in my life, there was one thing more than anything else that I wanted. Like it was the thing. It was the apple of my eye and it was the original Game Boy, right? You know, the really rubbishy gray thing, that sort of thing with the LCD screen. That was like a whole world of incredible gaming opportunity. You could take it with you. You didn't even need to like plug it into a TV. Everyone now is just like, oh, I've got an iPhone. What's that for? But then that was like, oh my days, this is the most incredible thing. I can game when I'm in the car. I can game at my granny's house. I can game everywhere, right? The Game Boy, I'm selling it to you, right? Selling it hard. Game Boy was everything. I wanted one so badly. But in those days, a Game Boy cost 70 pounds, right? And I brokered this deal with my mom and dad that if I saved half, they would give me half, right? And they agreed. I mean, are they foolish or what? But they agreed to do it, right? 
And that's a big deal, right? 35 quid to save at £1.50 a week is going to take quite a while, all right? But they agreed, and I was game, right? So I started saving, and in between, I was like persuading my mom and dad, you know, I think we should go to Nanny and Granda's house today. And, but that was like every weekend, maybe we should go to your other nanny's house today, right? You know, slipping you their wee like two pounds, right? So I, would, I was like campaigning for that. I would start offering to do chores around the house in return for like money. And this was like going on and on. But like saving was still too slow for me. Like I had to have that Game Boy. And then it happened one day. I spotted it. As I went to put my coat away in the cloakroom of our old house, I spotted it. A big jar in the corner of that cloakroom full of money, right? Full of money, full of pound coins, like just full in the corner of the room. And I'm like, jackpot. I don't know what that's for, but I'm having it, right? So I start looking at it, and I'm looking at this thing. And the thing is, on the side of the jar were the words, Presbyterian Women Leprosy Mission Collection, right? Like, written pretty boldly on the side of said jar. Now, you would think, obviously, being such a good and godly person from even a young age, that I might have thought, you know, not, you know that I will put my money in for the leprosy mission, right? You might think that, but that is not how it went. I started to take money from the leprosy mission jar. You're starting to see the, just the sheer depth of work that Grace has done in my life at this point, right? I start to take money from the jar. And at the start, it's like, you know, I just take... 50p, right? But then it's like, mm, well, no one's noticed, so, you know, I'll just keep at it until I'd taken like 20 pounds from the leprosy mission jar, right? And all of a sudden, just, you know, by some miracle, I had enough to buy the Game Boy, right? And I'm like, Mom, Dad, I've got enough to buy the Game Boy. Mom, Dad clearly are like, where the heck did he get all that extra money from, right? Mom susses it out. She gets suspicious. She puts it all together. She starts to go to the jar, and she's like, mm, there's a bit less in here. And I got in the most trouble I have ever been in in my entire life. Not only did I have to give the money back, I had to give all the money I had saved to that point to the leprosy mission to kind of get over the sin that I had wrought, right? Eventually, I got my Game Boy. But the thing is, right, that my desire... My longing, my want for that handheld games machine of glory had become the thing that had driven my actions. It made me an otherwise honest kid into a master criminal of some form. See, desire had set the direction in my life. And I was willing to do whatever it would take to get what I desired. And I say that this morning because I wonder if you have ever thought about the role of desire when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. When it comes to that word discipleship, I wonder if desire is a word that you associate with that term. Desire. Because when it, when it comes to our relationship with God, my experience in the church up to now is that it's words like faithfulness and perseverance and obedience and discipline that we revere and we elevate. They become the words that we associate with, with discipleship. If we just persevere, we just stick at it, we just don't give up, that's what discipleship is all about. And you see, these are good things. We need those things. We're going to get on to some of those things in the weeks that are ahead. But like any relationship. It needs to be marked with desire. 
I don't know if you've ever had that experience of sitting in a restaurant. And I know we all do it, right? You're at the restaurant, but really what you're doing is spying on everybody else. Partly to look at what they're eating, because you're like, I want that. Whatever they're eating, I need that in my life, right? But also sometimes when you sit there and you see a couple beside you, and they're talking, but there's like no connection. There's like nothing. They may even be sitting on their phones opposite each other, right? But there's not, doesn't seem to be connection. And, and it's something in you goes like, I don't, I don't want that. that whatever relationship is, I, I don't want that sort of relationship. I want one where there is desire, where there's connection, where there's electricity between us. I want that sort of relationship. Our relationship with Jesus is exactly the same. It doesn't start with perseverance and obedience and just getting on with it. It starts with desire. It starts with desire. Like coming up through youth groups, so often the stuff about spiritual disciplines like reading the Bible or prayer or worship or whatever were talked about in such a way that the only things that I was left to feel about them were guilt that I didn't do it enough, shame that others seemed to do or no way more than I did, or a sense of duty that I probably should get on with things. Desire was not part of the conversation. And yet right here, as Jesus describes, the way of the cross, that's his way. He starts like this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. See, it's that first word, wants to be. Wants. The root word is thelo, and it means desire. It's the first word in the way of the cross, the first part of what it means to follow Jesus. This is the starting point. The people of God are people of desire. We are to be people of desire. So what does it look like? Well, I just want to dig into two things, right, that help us see that living as people of the way means desire at the start and desire in the end. We need to be people of desire at the start. One of the developments, if you watch football, and I do watch football occasionally. Uh, it, one of the developments in kind of commentary and all of that, it seems to be gone, right? That the sorts of people that were on as pundits or commentators were people that just said nice things about football, right? Like that is gone. It seems now that pundits and commentators are just as much box office as the football is itself, right? So now we've got people like Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher who like don't agree about anything. Ian Wright, Micah Richards, Alex Scott, and the one and only, everyone's favorite, Roy Kane, right? Because he's just scathing about everything under the shining sun. Nothing impresses him, right? But one of my favorite things that Roy Kane does when he commentates on football is whenever pundits, other pundits talk about, you know, a player or a team uh, and about the hunger or the desire that they have, right? Like they, they put in a shift, they work really hard, hunger for the ball. Roy Kane normally turns back with a takedown along the lines of, you're going on about hunger and desire, but that's the bare minimum for a Premier League player. There are always exceptions. If you've watched the Ronaldo documentary on BBC iPlayer, then you'll know that the standout feature of his life is just desire, just hunger to keep going and be at the very top, right? The guy has scored nearly a thousand career goals. I mean, why does he even bother anymore? Like, I wouldn't get up in the morning. He just, but he just keeps going because desire doesn't let him stop. And in Cain's eyes, desire is the bare minimum. Desire is the starting point. And as we read the passage in Mark 8, Jesus is pointing at exactly the same thing. Desire is where it starts. 
The book of Mark, up until this point, has been fast-paced. If you've ever spent time reading it verse by verse, it's fast, right? It kind of moves from one thing to another very, very quickly. It's blazing through miracles and signs and wonders, teaching which got everyone to stand up and pay attention, left many inside the religious institutions offended. And most of that was because of his authority, okay? One of the big overarching themes of the whole book of Mark is authority. Authority when he spoke. Authority when he healed. Authority when he cast out demons. That's what they saw when they saw him. He claimed and wielded authority like somebody who was the Son of God. So much so that as we get towards Mark 8, the disciples are, are kind of eventually coming to know who he is. Like, they're eventually getting it. Like, oh, He's the son of God. Like you might think, you know, they might have got it before now, but it's taking them a while to get it, that he's the Messiah. He is who he says he is. But yet this passage in the narrative of Mark is the point where it changes, right? Up until now, it's been all of that stuff, right? Stuff that you might call broadly like life-giving stuff, miracles, healings, teaching, authority, all of that. It's been all about life, but this is where it changes because now, just as they begin to understand him, Jesus begins to talk about death. Just as they're beginning to get it, right? From this point on, the narrative is on its way to Jerusalem and to the cross. Hence, this passage is called the way of the cross. Like they're just starting to get a picture of life with him, the good life. And now he speaks about death. What's with that? And there's this interesting little section in this passage. The message translates it like this. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way to saving yourself, your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? He's talking about suffering. He's talking about the the kind of challenge of the war that's in us within self-help or independence. He's talking about sacrifice or gain. He's talking about getting everything you want or giving everything you have. It's almost as if at this point, Jesus knows that if your eyes are only on this world and the stuff that's all around us clamoring for our attention, the stuff that fills your Instagram feeds, if that's the stuff that has your eyes, if you're only after that, then this world is going to make you better offers than him. It's going to make you better offers. It's going to make you offers of gain and stuff. It's the way of self. It's the way of stuff. It's the way of comfort. It's very often not deepest evil, the worst things that are the greatest contest to the work of God in your life. It's very often nice things. It's very often brunch and Scandinavian furniture and nice houses and great jobs and clothing brands. Very often the greatest contest for God in your life is not pure evil. It's stuff that's good, but it gets in and then it has your heart. And this is all about desire. It's like Jesus knows that but also speaks into how his way, the other way, if we're gonna go his way, because we all get a choice and we are all choosing whether we know it or not, whether it's conscious or not, then his way starts with desire. And this really should come as no surprise to us, right? Because at the heart of what it means to be us, of who we are, right, is our desires. 
They are right at the center of who we are. We are formed by our loves. Everything forms around our loves. You see, at its core, discipleship, this word that we're exploring, it's not a cerebral experience. It's not a cerebral exercise. It's not actually really about thinking and processing lots of stuff. We might think it is or even have been taught that it is, but it's not about knowledge, more books. It's not even about knowing the Bible cover to cover, though all of those things are good things. Why? Because we cannot and do not think our ways into new ways of living. We don't think our way there. It's not possible to think our way into being a Jesus person. That's not possible. We don't think our way there. We can only hold on for so long. It's why so many short-term diets are short-term diets because we can't continue to think our way out of chocolate and Coke and ice cream and chips and whatever else, right? You can't just think your way out of the things that you love. That's not how it works. It only works if we come to love different things more. It's a question of a greater love. See, if our lives are gonna change, then it will be around our desire. We can't think our way into new ways of living. We can only love our way, following the desires within us into new ways of being. We can't think our way there, but we can love our way there. The theologian Augustine said it really beautifully when he said that love is like gravity, that we live toward what we love. The things we desire, the stuff deepest within us, they carry us in the direction that they are weighted. He goes on to say, my weight is my love. Where I am carried, my love is carrying me. It's like gravity. It pulls us along. Our lives are always moving towards our desires. Or to put it even more strongly than that, your desires are who you really are. Your desires are who you really are. You see, we can say that we are for this or we're really passionate about that, right? Because we all do that. We say we're really into this or, you know, I just really love the gym, but you never go. Or, you know, I'm just really into healthy eating, but yet you've had three McDonald's this week. Like, you can say you are, but your lives will tell the story because your lives move towards that which has your heart. Big things and small, meaningful and seemingly meaningless. It's who we are. And Jesus says that the first step to following him is going to take our desire. We have to want to follow him. It'll only work if we want it. And I wonder if you've ever really honestly talked to God about your desires before. I wonder if you've talked to him about them. We all have them. I wonder if you've talked to him about yours. I don't know what it is, status, success, fame, recognition, relationship, security, comfort. I don't know what your thing is, but everyone has a thing. And I wonder if you've talked to God about it before. I said that today because I was thinking about this talk over the week. It occurred to me that the only two things that will ever be with us forever are who we are and God. It's us and him. Our circumstances will change. What we have will change. People that are in our life will change. The things that we belong to and we do will change. The two things that we will have with us are us and him. And so we need to talk to him about our stuff, right? 
the spiritual formation books that you might read, and there's lots out there, will tell you that there's really two elements to spiritual formation. One is getting to know God better. That seems obvious. The second part is getting to know yourself better. Because we're human beings, we connect to God straight through ourselves. So as we get to know ourselves better, we have this opportunity to get to know God better as we do so. In other words, don't hide the desires and longings of your heart from him. The only way you will ever be able to connect into Jesus is to talk to him and to open up about them. Have you talked to him about your stuff? What are you longing for? Not shamefully, not, I'm not you know, asking you, you know, to do it with deepest shame. I'm saying, what are you longing for in your heart? There's no shame there. Have you talked to him about it? The most famous thing Augustine ever wrote was this. Because you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. And it's an astonishing sentence, right? In just a few words, it says stuff of so much depth. There is a huge amount of theology going on in that one statement, which I'm not going to get into in this one short talk, right? He wrote it in a book, uh, wrote it in a work, essentially, called Confessions. And in short, Augustine is honest enough to write about his desires and how his relationship with God engages with those desires, right? And this sentence is incredible, And it points to just two things that I'm going to home in on. One, God made us this way. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless. You made us this way, God. God made us like that, full of desire and longing, full of hunger beyond ourselves, a restlessness, a dissatisfaction. Does anybody else feel that way at times? It's in there because God made you that way. We are all this way because he made us this way. And the second part is our restlessness will only ever be met in him. The one who created it is the only one who can meet it. It will never cease unless we point the infinite nature of ourselves towards someone who is infinite. We spend so much time as people longing for the infinite, pointing our lives towards stuff that is finite, that the only thing that will meet it is the one who made us this way. He is origin and destination. And we live our lives like homing pigeons, always trying to come back to that which set us this way. Ruth Haley Barton, uh, who wrote an incredible book called Longing for More, uh, she wrote this. Your desire for more of God than you have right now, your longing for love, your need for deeper levels of spiritual transformation than you have experienced so far is the truest thing about you. You might think that your woundedness or your sinfulness is the truest thing about you or that your giftedness or your personality type or your job title or your identity as husband or wife, mother or father somehow defines you. But in reality, it is your desire for God and your capacity to reach for more of God than you have right now that is the deepest essence of who you are. What you're longing for is who you are. 
Jesus says that the start, the first thing of this discipleship journey is desire. We orient our lives around the things that we love, not what we think. And if we're going to walk the way of Jesus, then it's going to start with your love. It starts with desire at the start. But secondly, living in the way of Jesus is about desire in the end. We have desire in the end. And these are the words, okay, from a different passage now. This is from John 1, verse 35 to 39. This is what it says. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them and asked, what do you want? And he said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him, and it was about four in the afternoon. I picked this passage because when you read the Gospels, Jesus seems to do this thing again and again. It's a repeat habit of his life, and it is to ask this question, what do you want? He does it all the time. For example, in Mark 10, just a little after the passage we read earlier, he says this, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He said, what do you want? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. There it is, the same again. He does it again and again and again. He has this habit of asking this question, what do you want? For people that are looking for something, sometimes those that are broken bodily, physically, mentally, spiritually, sometimes it seems obvious, right? Like a person that's crippled will approach him and say something and he'll say, what do you want? Sometimes you're like, Jesus, come on now. It's pretty obvious what he wants. He still asks the same question again and again. What do you want? You see, if our following Jesus starts with desire, then our ongoing life with him needs desire to. Anyone in this room who is married will know the sheer amount of work that goes into a wedding. It is one of the more exhausting things that you will ever do in your life is getting ready to get married. Who knew table settings were such a big deal? Or shoes or flowers, right? We were with a couple that got married uh, a couple of weeks ago and they were talking about on the way up to the wedding. They're otherwise very chilled people, right? And as we were talking on the night of the rehearsal, the bride was like, I just had a mental thing about flowers during the week. I just, I just got into it. I just turned into that person that was like, this won't do, and I lost my mind. Weddings are the most stressful thing, right? And right after we got married, Joy and I were talking one night, and she said this, what it takes to get me, it takes to keep me, right? What a diva. All the girls in the room are like, yes, queen, right? That's what she said one night. She's watching online this morning, Joy. We all think you're a diva now. Anyway, But in so many ways, she's right, isn't she? She's right. Like, why is it that so often in life we channel all of our energy into stuff at the start and then we let it go as it goes on? What is that? Like you take up a new hobby or whatever and you're like all in for about two weeks and then it's like, oh, I can't really be bothered anymore. Or it's relationships, as I say, and you start off all this energy around a wedding and then as the relationship goes on, it's like... Suppose we won't do date night tonight then. You know, you kind of, it wins, doesn't it? And our relationship with Jesus is no different either. If you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, then no doubt you will have known periods of time in your life when your desires waned. 
Maybe you're in one right now. If you follow Jesus, you'll know times in your life when desire is like down here somewhere. You see, it started with the big high of a conference or an alpha weekend or a youth week event or whatever. It started with a prophetic word or a healing. It started with a sense that the message of Jesus just made sense of everything or a sense of deep joy long before you ever encountered things like unanswered prayer or disappointments or things like that. You see, it started way up here. And while it was way up here, your desire was like way up here. It was like, Jesus, I'm doing anything you ask me to. I'll go to Africa right now. Just send me, Lord. I'm in, right? And then life. And desire that was up here is, is like coming down here somewhere. And at some point, if it keeps going that way, you're out. And our desire for God and his kingdom wanes, doesn't it? James K.A. Smith, uh, in his book, You Are What You Love, he writes this, we are what we love, but we might not love what we think. And that's critical, right? We are what we love. That's that desire at the start thing, right? But we might not love what we think. You see, human beings are made for desire and love. We know that, right? The thing is, though, that we can't not love. We're made for it, so we can't not do it. It doesn't switch off. So whenever I say our desire for the kingdom and for Jesus wanes, it's not because desire has like went out in our lives. It's because it just gets pointed elsewhere. It's because the desire that at one point was pointed at Jesus and whatever he had for us just gets pointed elsewhere. When I was growing up, my mom and dad uh, cracked up at me one Christmas day, right? Because I went on and on and on about something that I wanted for Christmas, okay? Just like went on about it. I'm a campaigner, right? I just wear people down. If you're here and you have a vision for something at church, I will wear you down until you end up doing it, right? That's my ministry model is he who gets the vision gets the job. Now all of you are like, I'm never telling you anything that's on my heart, right? But that was my mood as a child, right? I just wore my parents down. And so I went on and on and on about something for Christmas. So Christmas Christmas Day, I come downstairs, I rip open the presents, right? And it's exactly the thing that I wanted. And then I turned around to my mom and dad. And you would think that the thing that comes out of my mouth is like, thank you so much, mom and dad. This is incredible. But the thing that came out of my mouth was, mom, dad, next year for Christmas, I would like, right? I'm an awful person. Side note, right? Elle got a new water bottle for school the other day, okay? And we had spent a long time stewing over which water bottle we were going to get, okay? This is a big day when you're, when you're four years old and you're going to primary school, right? So we choose the water bottle. She's like, I can't wait to get my water. Every day was like, has the delivery man come yet? I'm like, no, it's just a water bottle, right? This is going on for a week. Eventually, the, the delivery man delivers the ball. And the second the bottle gets out of its packet, Elle puts water in it, takes a drink from it. She goes, turns around to me and goes, Daddy, you know when you can get me another bottle? I would like, and I'm like, history is repeating itself in my life. Here's the thing. Desire doesn't disappear. It just transfers. It doesn't disappear from our life. If you're here today and you feel dry, you feel like I haven't hungered for God in a long time, it's not because you don't hunger anymore. It's just mostly probably because you're hungering for something else. I had a long Zoom call um, with Pete Hughes a bit before we did the input night that we did at church. 
And we were talking about lots of different things, just wrestling with church. Uh, we were kind of much more in the thick of the pandemic at that point, hence being on Zoom and not in person, right? And so we were talking about like what was going on in London and how it had been so very different. And I was talking a bit about here. And we got on to talking about this whole question. And he termed it the, the idea of misdirected love, okay? And so we had this long conversation. So this next section of what I'm going to say is pretty much stolen from what we talked about that day. And it is to say, that our loves don't wane, they just move on to other things. And our culture has lots of these things all around it, doesn't it? Like things that we say or we want something, but actually we go after something else and the result is something different entirely. And so we worked through some of those things as we talked that day. And, and I think they might resonate with us today, okay? Because I think lots of us find it very easy in our lives to end up going after stuff that might seem good, but actually we've, we've, we've just got misdirected. We've went just off line. And the first of those is self-sufficiency, Right? Our culture loves self-sufficiency, doesn't it? We love to be self-sufficient ourselves. I mean, we literally have the phrase, a self-made man, don't we? Like, we take great pride in, like, I did it all myself. Like, I'm my own boss. I get it done. Particularly if you're millennials, we've got a whole thing with millennials that, like, love being their own boss, entrepreneurial thing that's in them. We love just doing our thing. We hate conformity. I am self-made. Self-sufficiency is a big thing, right? And it's there because what we really want is fruitfulness, don't we? Just about all all of us in our lives want our lives to be fruitful. We want to be successful. We want to do well with what we have, whether that's relationships or that's work or whatever. We want fruitfulness. And there's nothing wrong with fruitfulness, is there? We want fruitfulness. So we go after self-sufficiency, don't we? And we do it because very often, if we're honest with ourselves, we struggle to trust God with our lives, don't we? We struggle to trust Him with the ambitions that we have. We struggle to trust Him with the resources that we have. I struggle to trust them with the stuff that we long for. And so we decide that we'll do it for ourselves. We're the masters of our own lives, the masters of our own destiny. And we do it because we aren't sure that God will come through for us. See, we want fruitfulness, but we go after self-sufficiency. And the result, all we get is exhaustion. All we get is exhaustion. We live in one of the most exhausted societies in the history of the world. We get exhaustion because our lives have become all about our own strength and what we really need is faith. The first thing that gets misdirected is self-sufficiency. The second thing is status, right? Our world loves status, doesn't it? One of my first jobs was in Subway, okay? And uh, I found out, you know, on my first day that I wasn't just there, you know, to chop onions and all the rest. I had become a sandwich artist, right? And one of the things that I love in our world are job titles, right? I don't know if you ever noticed, job titles are becoming more and more elaborate. Like, it is ridiculous. Take a sample of some of these absolute buttes, right? First one, Ray Wolf, director of sandbags. I love that. How does one become the director of sandbags? Next one, this guy, Carrie Lang, therapist. Got an issue with your bap? Come see your therapist, right? Next one, this is Lonnie Johnson, professional snuggler. I don't know about you, but he's the last guy I'm going to for a snuggle, right? Next guy, look hired, namer of clouds. I mean, I, I don't know how you look at Next one, Lee Sandbrook, head of elephants. One might think it would be an elephant that is the head of elephants, but apparently it's Lee Sandbrook. Is there any more? Oh, there is. James Dunstan, space lawyer. (laughs) 
I think, is that all of them, Connie? I think, yes, thankfully that's it, right? How does one become a space lawyer? Anyway, job titles, you're laughing. Jamie has lost it. I don't think he's going to be able to lead worship, okay? It's all about elevating ourselves, isn't it? We elevate ourselves to a role that sounds more important than it is because it's about status. And you could laugh at job titles, but equally it could be about postcodes, couldn't it? The postcode you live in, the job that you do. We care about what other people think, don't we? How many people care an awful lot about their online presence, their identity, you know? Got to keep this profile going, make sure the pictures are sweet, all the rest, get the likes up, all that. We care about that stuff. We care about it, and status is the bearing because what we really want is significance. We want to be significant, don't we? But if we want significance, but we go after status, all we get is insecurity. It's all we end up with. And we need to relearn the love of the Father. We are significant. We are of worth and purpose and meaning and identity because of whose we are. Status. The next one is comfort. I mean, coronavirus, anyone, comfort has like skyrocketed in everyone's lives. The food we eat, the stuff we drink, the Netflix we consume. We try to consume our way into comfort because of the discomfort in our lives, don't we? When what we really want is wholeness. We don't want to feel empty or broken or lonely or whatever it is that we feel. You see, we want wholeness, but we go after comfort. And all we get in the end is numbness. We just get numb, don't we? And what we desperately need is to experience healing. That sense of, I'm hurting and I need you, Lord. I'm broken and I need you. I'm done with filling my life with the wrong stuff. Comfort. Division is the next one. I mean, just look at the world in which we live, whether it's like on a global scale or whether it's how divided communities are. I mean, it's Northern Ireland. I don't need to tell you about that or how totally and completely the echo chamber of our social media world makes us, right? What we really want actually is belonging, don't we? We want to have a tribe. We want to have a people. We want to be a part of something. We want belonging, but actually we go after division and all we get in the end is disconnection. And the only way out is hospitality. It's crossing boundaries to bring strangers and others into our lives and around our tables. It's to engage with the people who aren't our people at this point in time. We long for a sense of belonging. Next is entitlement. And actually what we really want is justice or equality. By that I mean, right, looking at what other people have, their jobs, their homes, their relationship status, their holidays or whatever. Right? You look at them and say, I deserve that. I work just as hard as them. Why do they get that? You know, we are the masters of the people that say, but are they really happy? You know, that phrase, right? We live like that, don't we? Because we're just jealous of their lives. We feel entitled that we should have it all the same. It's why we live in a world where everybody stands on rights, don't we? That is my right to this, my right to that. We get angry at the government. We get angry at our jobs, angry at families. We get angry at God, don't we? Like, God, why have you given them that and not me? I deserve it every bit as much as they do. What we really want is peace, don't we? 
We want a sense of everything as it should be. But what we get if we go after entitlement is just jealousy. We just get jealous, don't we? That's why Instagram becomes just the most heart-rending thing because you spend it going, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. I'm jealous, I'm jealous, I'm jealous. The only way out is grace. It's to know and to learn that everything we have is grace. Everything we're given. The word grace, charis, it means gift. It's a gift to us. It's the only way to live, knowing the goodness and gift of God. It's just pure gift. And by extension, that we become people who have so experienced the most astonishing gift that we become people who so extend the most astonishing gift. And finally, shame. You see, most of us who experience shame, what we really want is freedom, don't we? We really want to feel free. But when shame is a bearing in our life, all we do is hide. See, guilt is different. Guilt says, I got something wrong. Shame says, there's something wrong with me. And so what do we do when shame is in our lives? We hide, don't we? It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. It's what we still do. We hide the stuff we are ashamed of. We hide it from God. We hide it from others. We just go deeper and deeper into the hiddenness of shame. The only thing that will speak to our shame is intimacy. You see, we're longing for freedom, but what we deal in is shame. And what we really need is intimacy. It is a peculiar thing to be most known for everything about you and yet feel most free. That's what intimacy is all about. These are just a few of the ways that our desires get misdirected in our lives. And all of a sudden, our desire for Jesus and the kingdom is down here because our desires eat each other. That's the truth about them, right? We cannot desire two things the same. God says that when he talks about mammon, doesn't he? That's money, wealth, all that. You cannot desire both God and money, he says, because they will eat each other. They are incompatible. And our desires are just the same. It's like you only have so much capacity for desire in your life. And if it's spent, going after that it can't go after this it's a contest it's a war but it's not the only one hear these words from verse 38 onwards again when the two disciples heard him say this they followed Jesus turning around Jesus saw them following and asked what do you want there's that question they said rabbi which actually in some translations means my great one it adds that those words which means teacher afterwards that was a Greek thing but actually in the original text it was my Greek or my great one it's personal where are you staying Come, he replied, and you'll see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him until it was about four in the afternoon. Here's the thing. The disciples went looking for Jesus that day. But as they did, they didn't know that he was coming looking for them. He was looking for them. And our desires are, are, are not the only thing at work in our life. God's desire is at work in our lives too. Our desire always originates in him and he is looking for us. It's not like in this particular interaction, right? Whenever he was looking for them and, and they come, right? And, he, and they ask him, you know, where are you staying? It's not like Jesus' first reaction is like, none of your business. I'll have, I'm the Messiah. Get out of my way, plebs, right? He's not like that, right? They ask him where he's staying. And he tells them, right? Not only does he tell them, but he brings them with them and spends hours with them. Why? 
Because he's aware that a passing conversation won't be enough. And I say that today because our passing conversations with God won't be enough. As we career towards the desires that are in our lives, it won't be enough either. Passing conversations won't do. You see, there is this reality that we see very often that our desire leads to our habits, right? That's kind of what lots of things say, that who we are will lead us toward what we do, right? Our desire goes to habits. But here's the truth. Our habits look back to our desire. Our habits hold the key to come back round to our desire. If we want something bad enough, like a Game Boy, right? We change our spending habits to get it or our policy on stealing, right? But also those habits, right? They change our desires too, don't they? They change our desires. I mean, I know tons of people who run, okay? And the truth is, I don't think I know a single one that actually enjoys running. I mean, running is pure wick. If you're here today and a runner, bless you, right? Because it's wick, right? It hurts. You don't even go anywhere. It's like you went out and ran for half an hour. Where'd you go? Round the street three times. Well, good for you. I went round a park in East Belfast. Well, I mean, why did you even bother? I don't understand, right? Nobody actually really enjoys running. It's painful, right? But yet I know so many people who always said they hated running and then started for a charity leg and a marathoner because somebody wrangled them into some event to do, right? And then they found that actually what they loved was being fit. See, they hated running, but they loved how it made them feel. They loved how it made them look. They loved how it began to change their life and all of that sort of stuff. And so now they still run because our habits can change our desires. Our desires drive our habits, but our habits can change our desires. Here's the thing. Jesus knew that the only way to pass on to these disciples a life of following him was to be with them. And a conversation wasn't enough. He wanted time. And habits that speak to our desires need to form around imitation and practice. They are going to take time. If you've started, if you read the Bible regularly, you pray regularly, you have rhythms in your life and you're like, this isn't working, God. Like what I really want is intimacy, but I just feel like tired because I have to get up early to read my Bible every day or whatever it is. You feel it's not working. It takes time to rewire desires in your life. Those are just some of the things that we're going to talk about in the weeks that are ahead. Discipleship, it's about desire. It's about desire. Meister Eckhart wrote this, the reason we are not able to see God is the faintness of our desire. There it is. Bang, right between the eyes. The reason we're not able to see God is the faintness of our desire. If we're gonna be people of the way, we need to be people of desire first. Our longing for God needs to lead our following of him.